This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, I have Dr. Matthew Petway, Assistant Professor of Spanish at the University of South Alabama and author of Cuban Literature in the Age of Black Insurrection, Monsano, Placido, and Afro-Latino Religion. Welcome to the podcast, Professor. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Happy Juneteenth. Happy Juneteenth, indeed. Happy Juneteenth, indeed. Um, so, so let's let's get this started. What is the origin story of Cuban literature in the age of Black insurrection? Well, the origin story of uh, Cuban literature in the age of Black insurrection has a lot to do with graduate school, uh, particularly with Manzano's slave narrative. Uh, known as the La Autobiografia, uh, sometimes referred to as Apuntes Autobiográficos. Uh, Manzano has the distinction, essentially, of having produced, as far as we know, the only slave narrative in Spanish America to be written by uh, by uh, an enslaved person or formerly enslaved person. And I was introduced to that slave narrative as a graduate student at Michigan State University um, many moons ago, <laughs> quite some time ago. <laughs> And uh, it was the, being introduced to that slave narrative, I had what you might think of as uh, some sort of Cuban Frederick Douglass, and I wanted to know more about this particular author. So the initial, my initial relation to the, to the author was to, uh, to pay a lot of attention to the trauma in the text, uh, which I think people tend to do with slave narratives, um, and, and to look for any any evidence of agency uh, that, that I could find. And it was in rereading the text, once I came back for the doctorate program many years later, that I began to see some things in the text that uh, didn't seem to be orthodox to me from the standpoint of religion, religious belief structures, things that seemed to question uh, the notion that Juan Francisco Manzano, uh, Cuban Frederick Douglass of sorts, uh, had uh, fully assimilated to Spanish Catholicism. And it was those things that uh, gave me a sense that I should look deeper. I should do some digging, do uh, what I like to call literary archaeology. Mm. Well, and that's very interesting. Like, can, can you talk about that kind of archaeology too? That, 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 that's really fascinating. Well, I, it, the language is uh, language that Nobel laureate Toni Morrison used uh, in reference to the creation of fiction. But I like to think of literary archaeology, the, the digging that I'm doing to create 
to, to create scholarship. And what it means essentially for me is to understand that beneath the surface of any text, that there are several layers. Um, and not only is that true in terms of connotation, but it's also true in terms of deeper uh, meanings within the text. So uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a, an emphasis Monsanto has in the slave narrative to talk about spirits. Uh, I sometimes he'll use euphemisms to refer to those spirits. Uh, or he'll use language sometimes that comes out of a Spanish Catholicism, like uh, almas aparecidas, uh, these, these apparitions, these souls that appear. And so what I seek to do in my study, in my literary archaeology, is to try to understand what a given term meant um, within the Spanish Catholic religious doctrine, and at the same time to ask what might it have meant within the larger society and what did it mean to enslaved Africans? And when we ask about the meanings of this particular phrase, uh, an even better example would be his references to the saints, which uh, within African Atlantic religious structures have been transculturated with an African divine spirit known as the Orisha. And so, um, so essentially what I've done is I've gone to ask, does this word have another meaning within the, the African uh descended communities, and what might that meaning tell us uh, about Manzano's uh, subject position? Mm, mm. And so let, let's go a little deeper here. Um, can you describe the creative process involved in, in developing Cuban literature in the age of Black insurrection as well? Yeah, the, the creative process... Um, I mean, it was just, uh, it was extraordinary. It was incredible. Uh, I found myself, I mean, I started this as a dissertation. Mm -hmm. And uh, so at the time, going to Cuba was really about getting rare books. But uh, as you know, with research, the more you dig, the more you find. And then sometimes you find things you don't anticipate. Um, and so I wound up in the National Library uh, in Havana, the National Archive. Once I finally got in, that took a while. <laughs> um I ended up in the uh, central Cuba in Camagüe, looking for information on other writers of African descent, uh, also within the 19th century. Um, it was extraordinary, Harvard, Yale. Um, but I feel like it was a very organic process. After my second trip to Cuba, uh, my first trip was in 2004, second trip was in 2006. And it was after my second trip to Cuba that I began to notice something and a poem that Juan Francisco Manzano had written called A Dream for My Second Brother. And it was some of the references that he made in the poem couldn't be attributed to Spanish romanticism. And so I began to dig to find out, you know, what these meanings, what these other, other meanings could possibly be. And that led me in the direction of asking whether or not there was any representation of African-inspired spirituality. So it kind of happened midway through, right before... I began to write my uh, prospectus for the dissertation. Wow, that, that's really that's a really dope story. Um, and can you specifically talk about uh, the writing process that was involved in, in in the story as well? Right, what what was it like to construct the story and and try to weave everything together? And also uh, talk about how you um, also how you decided to organize the text as well. Sure. Um, with the writing process, 
if I were to think of the writing process once the dissertation is over, I could probably describe it better because the dissertation is a special beast. It's the sort of thing that once you're done, you don't want to remember it. So, uh, but in terms of the book itself, um, I returned to Cuba in 2011 and then I've been to Cuba three times since I finished the PhD. Uh, that first trip allowed me the opportunity to go into the archives in Kamaway and into the national archives. Um, in order to do the writing, the first thing I had to do was to go back and look at what I had done uh, with the earlier iterations of the project and to begin to ask, to question my own thesis. I wanted to know, is there, was there any further evidence to suggest that Manzano and Plaza were engaging these African ideas of spirit and cosmos? And if so, what was it? And, uh, and to then ask after that uh, whether or not either poet, both poets were uh, accused of being part of an anti-government movement called the, we now refer to the 1844 movement, and Cuban scholars tend to call it La Escalera, or the latter conspiracy. Um, and I wanted to know, I knew that Manzano and Plaza had been accused both of being a part of that movement, but I wanted to see if perhaps it was because the state believed there was some sort of African spirituality embedded in their work. So I essentially had the question that I had asked previously with earlier iterations of, of the work, and I had a new question. And so I brought those two questions to bear in the process of rewriting. So there's a lot of starting and stopping when you, when you have a new question, you know, uh, so you might finish a chapter, you feel great about it, start on another chapter, and then you find something, a letter, maybe that interlibrary loan gets to you, or, <laughs> or you run across some notes from the field, and, and it changes the direction of the project. So it was very organic mm. for me. Mm. Interesting, interesting. And so um, you, you also talk about uh, one of the important aspects of this book, too, um, and, and that's really, and this is quoting from, from the text, too, what does it mean for you to write the first book-length study of Juan Francisco Manzano and Gabriel de la Concepcion Valdez, like, well, like, a.k.a. Uh, uh, Placido, as well? And so what, is that, what does that distinction for you mean, right? What, what, does, that, what does that mean for you? It means it means a lot. It it for me it uh, it means like it feels like a process where new ground, you know, the breaking of new ground. Um, it was baptism by fire, though, because um, the both poets had been analyzed typically as folks who had assimilated to Spanish Catholic culture, and. Uh, in order to make sense of that for the typical listener in the United States, we tend to think about colonies, the English colonies, as having this religious freedom. And uh, so we don't, we know that the, the Church of England was not the only church that, uh, that had any presence in the 13 colonies. Well, in, throughout Spanish America, the Catholic Church was the, the official church and Catholicism was the official religion. Uh, of all of Spain's colonies. Spain had a lot more, you know, many more colonies, colonies that reach from uh, the Rio Bravo all the way to, to Argentina. And Cuba was one of these first, one of the first colonies that they established in, uh, in the early 1500s. And so Catholicism had a very, very long presence there. And it was assumed that any person of African descent that wanted to play a significant role in the society would be uh, would be Spanish Catholic, not Spanish in an ethnic sense, but 
uh, essentially mm-hmm. follow the dictates of the Spanish Catholic Church. And so one of the things that I had to face in the process of putting it together was um, I, I took a look at the fact that in Cuban scholarship, Cuban scholarship tended to view Manzano and Palacio as mulatto archetypes. So mulatto is this antiquated term that we don't use in proper or polite speech anymore to talk about people of African descent who also have a European ancestry, typically a direct European ancestor, maybe your dad or your mom or your grandparent. But, but essentially, it's a, it, it, it was, uh, though it's an offensive term now in the United States, still used in the Spanish-speaking Caribbean, and uh, the mulatto archetype essentially pointed to the fact that people of African descent who had a European ancestor, that they could prove, right, that those folks would assimilate into Spanish Catholic culture in order to become knowledgeable, that knowledge resided in Spanish Catholic culture. Religious knowledge, cultural knowledge, but other forms of knowledge resided in, in Europe. And what I wanted to demonstrate was that there was something beneath the surface in Monsanto and Plasso's work, and that, in fact, knowledge resided in Africa as well for these writers. And it was challenging because uh, the path to political significance in uh, Spanish America, Spanish colonial Spanish America, was for one to become as white and as Catholic as possible. As mm. white and as Catholic as possible. So today when someone looks at uh, the papacy, I'll say this with great care, but when someone looks at the papacy, they, you know, they see a Latin American pope um, who, who doesn't uh, wear the same type of finery as his predecessors, who has positions that uh, are considered more progressive, perhaps, than popes of the past. Uh, but what we're talking about in the time of Marzano and Plaza is the legacy of, uh, of, a, of a religious tradition that was fused with uh, a notion of whiteness that meant that the soul of, supposedly, the soul of the African person uh, was dark and could be whitened through Catholicism, could be widened through this particular understanding of Christianity. And so Monsanto and Placio are within that. They've been baptized in the church. They're married in the church. When they died, they received the last rites. But I, I came to argue that essentially Monsanto and Placio were not rejecting uh, African knowledge, nor did they think that knowledge resided in Europe alone. Mm. And, and, and that and that part to me was one of the more uh, interesting points, really, just about where they grounded their selfhood from, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. specifically within um, a, a religious and, and cosmological uh, sense as well. Um, and so, you know, that that to me it, it leads to this next question about right is. Well, figures just from, especially from the rendering that you provide in Cuban literature in the age of insurrection, you you do very well to make them just just seem like super duper exciting, which obviously they were, <laughs> and the work that they were doing what, what, what was incredible and incredibly radical in in its most like in, in the the word radical's most extensive sense, right? That's I, right. You know we. Because I think the way that people use radical, I think a, a little too willy nilly nowadays. But that's another podcast, um, <laughs> right? But but for you, why do you think, right? And this goes to a, a, a important claim in the book. 
why do you not think other scholars wrote something book length on both radical Afro-Cuban authors before? Right. That, ju- that just seems like, right, something that, you know, you might think, mm-hmm. why didn't someone do this before? Right. So so can you tell us why? Or what your thoughts are? Well, my thoughts on that. Um, uh, first thing I would say that there's definitely been some good work uh, that was done in Cuba and the United States that helped me in the process of my search. Uh, but I think the biggest reason, in spite of that fact, uh, the biggest reason why I think it wasn't done is because uh, we discount Africa as a site of knowledge. Uh, we don't typically think of Africa as an epistemological terrain. Uh, when we ask about the origins of knowledge production and we ask about uh, the efficaciousness of how efficacious the knowledge system is, we're typically thinking about Europe particularly during that time. And so one of the things that I be, that in the book I seek to do and that I do with my students is to emphasize uh, to not begin African history uh, uh, with slavery. In the book, uh, we're beginning with slavery, but we're taking into consideration uh, Monsanto and Placio's uh, access to a Bakongo, uh, West Central African, and a Yoruba uh, knowledge system. And, and so if we think, for example, we know that Africans were not blank slates, not only from a cultural and religious standpoint, as I argue in the book, and as many anthropologists have argued before me, right? But if we know that Africa uh, was a fount of knowledge, for example, Judith Carney published the book Black Rice, pointing to, to the fact that West Africans brought to South Carolina rice cultivation, and some work has been done in Suriname as well pointing to the fact that Africans brought rice cultivation. So that's one example of a knowledge system that was brought from Africa uh, to the Americas that benefited, unfortunately, benefited European slavers tremendously, especially in South Carolina, where I used to live. Um, And so I think one of the reasons is because the argument was that Monsanto and Palacio had to assimilate to Spanish Catholic culture as much as possible to to be knowledgeable at all. And uh, and I so I think and I, and I think that the ways in which mulattoes were seen as being almost white. So so I'll just kind of say this as a way to opening up the point a little bit more. Whereas in the United States, we tend to think about race. Uh, I would say after the wars for independence, so after 1776, the conversation about races uh, moving away from. Christian and indigenous or European indigenous to European and African. So you have the growth of slave society in the 19th century. You, get, you, you develop a black-white dichotomy. Well, that black-white dichotomy never existed in, in, in quite the same way in Latin America. Instead, you had gradations. So both places, you have the myth of white supremacy made into law, made into social practice, right? So you have whites, whites at the top of the pinnacle of a pyramid, but then under them, you have a number of intermediary groups like mestizos, mixed race people, and once again, mulattoes, right? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so within, in, within Latin America, the assumption was that any, the opposite was true of the one drop rule in the United States. So if in the United States, a one African ancestor, because race is not a biological reality, so there's no such thing as African blood per se, but if one one had an African ancestor that he or she would be considered black, even if phenotypically, even if the phenotype belied such a classification, even if the person looked white to objective observers. Well, in Latin America, if someone could prove they had a European ancestor or two, 
and they could hide the abuela in the kitchen, hide their grandma in the mm -hmm. kitchen. That's the joke of Latin America. Then one could claim to be something other than black. And in that way, distance himself from blackness, which was thought of uh, to be erroneously the nadir of degradation, the lowest point imaginable, even below indigenous uh, people in this, 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 this Latin American racial pyramid. And so I think that it was hard for scholars to see through that. I think when, when thinking about knowledge, when thinking about uh, intellectual prowess, they unfortunately looked to France, Spain, and England instead of to Congo, to the Yoruba states. And so in my book, I make an effort to look in the other direction. And, and, and you did it quite well. You did it quite well. Um, yeah. And, and with that, too, um, you know, you, you spoke about uh, the Yoruba and, and such. And so this, that's actually a great segue to my next question. Um, what role did the slave trade play in the forms of spirituality both Manzano and Placido expressed personally and also in their writings? Because obviously Cuba has a different uh, uh, his, history in regards to the formal use of the slave trade, you know, in comparison to the United States. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so Cuba is one of the countries in uh, uh, Latin America that received the greatest number of African captives. In the first half uh, of the 19th century, Cuba receives uh, over a million, oh, I'm sorry, over half a million, excuse me, Cuba receives 547,000, over half a million African captives. And that's significant uh, to give the, re the readers a little bit of uh, background. Um, but since we're beginning uh, kind of in the 1790s with the book, uh, of the two authors, Juan Francisco Manzano was born in 1797, to the best of our knowledge. And his contemporary, who was born free, Placido, was born in 1809. So Manzano, I like to think of sometimes as a Cuban Frederick Douglass, and I like to think of Placido as a Martin Delaney type figure. Though so both of them are active, actively, active politically before either Martin Delaney or Manzano. So forgive my Amerocentric uh, reference, but I do it for heuristic <laughs> purposes. Um, so essentially, to, to the slave trade is significant to, to, uh, to us for understanding Manzano and Placido's literature and their access to African religious knowledge, because you have half over a half million people being, being uh, brought to Cuba against their will uh, in the first half of the 19th century. And uh, though it is difficult to specify specific African ethnicities, we do know which regions. Uh, and one of the regions of where people were brought against their will is from West Central Africa, the ancient kingdom of the Congo and some of the vassal states. Uh, and then we have, so we have uh, the Bakongo and we have uh, essentially the Bakongo cosmology. Um, and I like to think of cosmology as a concept of the universe and the man of human, the, and the role of humankind within the universe. So cosmology is a concept of the universe and the role of mankind within the universe. It's like a spiritual philosophy of sorts. Uh, Yoruba doesn't refer to any particular African ethnic group. Today, people will speak about it in such a way, but it's actually, it was actually a lingua franca uh, and there were a number of Yoruba states. Oyo was one of those states. Um, and, and so Yoruba was a, a, a lingua franca. Uh, so the Yoruba states essentially was another place from where lots of Africans were brought to Cuba against their will. The Bakongo were the first, though. The Bakongo are being brought to Cuba in the 1500s. 
So I know today is Juneteenth, so let's think about this. If, mm-hmm. uh, if 1607 is when Jamestown is founded, prior, uh, about a century prior to the founding of Jamestown, you have Bakongo people speaking Kikongo and laying down ritual foundations in eastern Cuba. That is the sort of thing that I want listeners to know to, to help us to shift our focus away from uh, the, the United States and North America as you know, the birth of African-American cultures. So what do we get from this Bakongo and these Yoruba? These traditions are very different. And I don't have the time in the podcast to go into distinction. Uh, but I do want to talk about some things that they share, mm-hmm. if, time, if time permits. Um, one of the things is that both traditions uh, are inclusive. So they have a pluriversal rather than a universal notion of, 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 the, of the world and of the spirit world. Um, and so pluriversal meaning that it allows for multiple perspectives. And this came out of Monsanto Plaza's work because they could be in the, in the Spanish Catholic church. They, like I said, they were baptized. They were married in the church. They could say, yo soy católico, pero soy católico a mi manera. I'm Catholic my own way. <laughs> so you have to talk to me to figure out which way I am. And Cubans will still tell you that today. I, I love it. <laughs> I love it. So that pluriversality meant that they could believe both things and then begin to ask questions. What do I need to achieve this objective over here? One of the differences I want to point out, too, is that there was no belief in heaven and hell and either the Bakongo cosmology or the Yoruba cosmology. And that was significant. So the notions of judgment are different. To whom are you responsible if you do something that is considered uh, harmful? You're responsible to whomever you did it, and you may have offended an ancestor because of an- ancestral reverence is important in both traditions. So one looks not to offend the ancestors. So they are the conduit of, e- of ethical uh, values or of ethics. Uh, another thing is the whole notion uh, of Spanish Catholicism and Protestantism, right? Uh, Protestant tradition that I grew up in, for example, in Detroit, there's a lot of emphasis on redemption. Mm. You need to be saved, you know? You're not right. You got to get saved. And uh, so that emphasis on redemption was the sort of thing that Monsanto and Plaza were certainly taught in the church. And, and they, they knew it well. I mean, uh, their literature reflected uh, Catholic doctrines uh, to the T and some, some of the literature to the T and some of the literature is subversive and it's pointing towards uh, something African, but they certainly were knowledgeable of Catholicism. I mean, Monsanto knew it to the point that he memorized sermons as a boy. Um, wow. Yeah. He memorized sermons as a boy, um, really an incredible, a prodigious mind. But what I want to point out here is that while the church focused on this notion of black redemption, that was really born of a long Catholic history of racializing doctrine, right? A Catholic history, if you go back to the 1400s, where the Pope gives Portugal and Spain the right to enslave those who are not, who are not Christian, right? Going way back mm-hmm. to that period of time, so that, that, that type of racialization, where essentially what Catholicism promised enslaved people is that God would save the soul, but leave the body unchained. Whereas the Bakongo and the Yoruba practices gave them the option of procuring the power necessary to liberate themselves. 
And so the slave trade is really important because even though people are not living long periods of time and people are dying, we still have essentially uh, tools that either Monsanto or Plasso could use in order to become the masters of their own destiny, Oof. which is the antithesis of slavery. Yes. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Amazing. Amazing. And, and, and also that leads me to my next question. What worlds were Monsanto and Placido attempting to create with their literature and their writing and their, and their activism? What world were they attempting to create? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, 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 the book actually didn't give me a chance to really explore that. So I really appreciate the question um, because the book essentially um, ends with Monsanto and Palacio facing uh, the music, so to speak, facing the military tribunal because they both have been accused, right, of uh, conspiring to exterminate the white population. So what the Spanish government does is it silences completely African-descended critique of the system, the cause for the emancipation from slavery, uh, and even calls for independence from some members of this anti-slavery 1844 movement, typically known as La Escalera or the Ladder Conspiracy. Um, But I've done some thinking about that. And I think that what Manzano and Plaza were looking to do, um, first and foremost, it wasn't a conspiracy to exterminate the white population. What the Spanish government essentially did is it, it's a deliberate misreading of the Haitian revolution. So at the Haitian revolution, what Africans set out to do and African descendants like Dessalines uh, set out to do was to establish a, a black state. And what they do in one of the constitutions, Dessalines constitution, I believe it's 1805, is to declare all people black on the island. And that included people who have fought, Europeans who have fought with the Haitians against the French and had defeated the French more than once, right? Um, Manzano, neither Manzano nor Plaza mentioned Haiti in their work. And what's interesting is when you look at the Spanish documentation, the archival record there, I have found as of yet, no direct reference to Haiti either. Haiti is the uh, not a chimera, but Haiti is essentially the, the, the ghost, the phantasm, right? It's present uh, and uh, seen, but ignored. I think what Monsanto and Plasso really sought to do uh, was to achieve radical racial equality. Okay, so I'm going to talk about where I think their goals co- coincided and where I think there may have been some difference. Because one thing I try to do in a nuanced way in the book is not only to speak to their aspirations, uh, but also some of their limitations, uh, their struggles. Um, you know, I don't want to give away what happens at the end, but... <laughs> of course, of course, of course. <laughs> but at the end of the day, they were struggling for radical racial equality. 
Uh, and one has to ask, and I don't really know the answer to this. Maybe there's some, there's some scholar out there, you know, who's in graduate school who's just going to blow our minds uh, and answer the question, did they seek, is radical racial equality possible without the elimination of whiteness itself? Okay, I, so I don't think in their work you can, elimination of white supremacy, but elimination of whiteness as an idea, right? Not white people whiteness as an idea, as an idea. And so when looking at and all of this, I think that um, that part remains uh, unclear, but they're both definitely looking for radical racial equality. And you can see that in the, in the record. You see that in Placido's uh, work when he, uh, in the record, when he attacks the white aristocracy and says that these folks are not actually, uh, they're claiming to be philanthropists, but this isn't philanthropy. They're here looking for the sleep of black women. Uh, very raw, very raw, it's very raw mm -hmm. moments there in the record. Uh, I think the other thing that they were both looking for was to adopt a pluriversal concept of knowledge. There are at least two forms of knowledge that I think they wanted people to be able to engage um, in, a, in a dynamic and a pluriversal fashion. So if, pluri, if a pluriversal world uh, is a world in which many worlds can coexist rather than being a unitary notion of, of, of knowledge. Um, the Mansano and Plasso, I believe, wanted both religious knowledge and aesthetic knowledge to, uh, to approach both of those things from a, a pluriversal standpoint. And so I see an example of that in Plasso, in Mansano, excuse me, in Mansano with his references to the saints and then the ways in which he mentions, uh, two saints by name, but one saint in the effort to escape the slave plantation, and that's San Antonio or St. Anthony. Well, that particular saint had been transculturated by Africans, been associated with the spirit of the crossroads, Legba in Haiti, Eshu in Nigeria, Elegua in Cuba. And so if in the process of escaping the plantation by hor on horseback, if Monsanto was going to cry out to anyone, or not even so much cry out to, but seek to appease, because it's a different type of system, right? And seek to appease anyone, it would be the spirits of the cross, spirit of the crossroads, so that potentialities, good potentialities, would be open to him as the road bifurcates, so he can go in the right direction. So that's a, a pluriversal. So he could do that, and he could believe in Christ if he wanted to. That's that, that's the whole mm -hmm. notion of the pluriversality. So it's really complex. Um, they also both wanted to achieve slave emancipation. Uh, now, this is where I, I'm not sure, uh, but I think they might diverge. The concept of black sovereignty. Mm. Concept of black sovereignty. It's clear to me that, that, that Palacio critiqued uh, African descendants who identified as mulattoes, even though he himself was of lighter hue. So it's clear that he, he critiqued them for wanting to become white, and he, he, so he didn't value, you know, uh, this, this mulatto identity, this whole notion of the closer to Europe, the better. Um, but I don't know how far Monsanto went with that. And, uh, and I think that one would have to read the book in order to. <laughs> hey, 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 go get the book, y'all. Go get the book. Go get the book. I mean, it's, it's, and part of it is that, that, that Placido is, is, you know, also take, has also put on the table, uh, not only emancipation, but independence. Um, 
whereas Manzano seemed to be mostly concerned with the emancipation of enslaved people. As you can see in this, the poem they dedicate to his brother, A Dream to My Second Brother, Un Sueño a Mi Segundo Hermano. So um, I think that's the best I could answer that question. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it also makes me think just, right, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about our moment and, and, and you did well to talk about the question I, I really talk about, was going to talk about next. And that's really looking at, you know, the, the ways that each uh, writer tried to subvert Catholic doctrine and Catholic oh, rule. Yeah. yeah. And so, so actually, you know what, you know, let, let's go to that specifically, right? Can, can you specifically talk about how they um, how each author, how each author did that, right? Because I think that, you know, for those of us who are not, you know, well-versed in the uh, uh, Afro-Latino uh, religious space or even Africana religions generally, uh, mm-hmm. I think what you're speaking about in this moment of terror, of violence and, 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 and such, I think you can provide a lot of interesting um, consideration for, for our listeners here. Okay. Well, I... Uh... I'll go back to the the notion of the crossroads with regard to uh, the ways in which these ideas show up. So if the if there's several worlds coexisting within one, uh, then there's not the type of hierarchy of meaning um, that Christianity tends to assume. I want to say that with great care, but that it tends to assume that hierarchy of meaning and that it certainly is certainly uh, meant for uh, for colonized people who are under the authority of the Spanish Catholic Church. So uh, one of the ways in which these uh, African ideas of spirit and cosmos show up for Manzano is his engagement with this with this with the spirit world, this emphasis on ritual. What a ritual gave him was a space to act uh, outside of the purview of the priesthood. It meant that he was not at church listening to the homilies of the priest that he memorizes as a, as a child and as an adolescent. Uh, instead, he's doing work by, by himself. So at the crossroads, they have hit several potentialities. And, uh, and when the world bifurcates, he could then make a decision that he would, that he would have to accept for himself, right? The emphasis uh, was not on redemption, but rather uh, acquiring power or ashe, the power to get things done. And so one of the concepts here, I think, that's so significant was the emphasis on power. And power can sometimes, though it's something that we aspire to, is something that can also be frightening um, to colonize people. Mm-hmm. Because with power comes great responsibility. There's one thing to protest, there's another thing to assume power and then exercise it in a way that is ethical. Um, Oof, that's a word right there, Doc. That is a word right there. My goodness. It's uh, Those two things are not easy, you know. Uh, so Placido, um, well, I'll say this with regard to Mansaro first. Mansaro also engages the Bakongo spiritual system with a belief in the power that is within mortal remains. So the way in which he talks about his mother's death and his father's death um, and the way in the poem, A Dream for My Second Brother, he pays homage to uh, what he called the miserable remains of his parents, uh, I think also really speaks to uh, his belief in uh, the power embedded in, um, in the remains of 
if we have enough time, can I read a, a, a stanza from that poem? Yeah, no, no. Hey, hey, the, the airwaves are yours, Doc. The okay. airwaves are yours. <laughs> and that's it. Go on forever, but I will read this in English quickly. Quickly, Monsanto then in this poem, A Dream for My Second Brother, transforms into a winged being, a bird. And he has these c- colorful uh, feathers. What he does essentially is tells his brother, don't you remember the time when we wept together? Uh, don't you remember our, our joy? And then he says, I had a dream. Let me tell you about it. And in the dream, I fled men. I ran to the hills. And in the hills, I fell asleep. And without knowing how, when I awoke, there were these, these, these wings that had sprouted from my back. And I began to fly. And in flight, I could see the plantation where I had been enslaved and where you, brother, remain. But I could also see the runaway maroon community known in Latin America typically as a palenque, or at least in the, in the Spanish Caribbean, as a palenque. And so he then says, quote, having seen so much from the air, I eagerly looked for the center of the earth to land my flight. I gather my feathers I slightly tilt my chest and turning in circles, I come down again and a well-aimed descent into the heart of Matanzas from where I gaze in that terrible place. There lie resting the miserable remains of our parents who gave us our first being, end quote. And so it's that last stanza where he's looking at the miserable remains of his parents. He's, he's paying homage essentially to the spirits of the dead that's particularly important in the Bakongo system because the emphasis is on ritual and is on working with the dead uh, in order to achieve things in, for the living, in the world of the living. Now, Palacio's engagement is so many examples of his engagement, but one that would be significant uh, for us uh, is a poem to Our Lady of the Rosary or to the Virgin of the Rosary. So mm-hmm. uh, Catholicism um, I would say inadvertently provided um, cover to an extent for African religious practitioners because like some of the African religious systems, the emphasis was on the supreme being, but there were several intermediaries that could reach the supreme being. And so those were saints and different manifestations of the Virgin Mary in the Spanish Catholic Church. But for the Yoruba-speaking Africans, the supreme being was Olodumare, Oloruno Olofi, those were his names. The intermediary spirits were called Orishas, right? So when you see Beyonce wearing gold uh, and lemonade and coming, I know this is kind of old now, but she's eliminated <laughs> coming out of the building and the water is flowing down and people are like, what is she doing? And she's sensual, but she's salty. She's fierce, but she's, but she's loving. Right, she is embodying Oshun, one of those intermediary spirits, the governess of the fresh waters, and so one of those spirits uh, in uh, in Yoruba cosmology is called Dada, and she was transculturated with the Virgin of the Rosary, Dada, D A D A, with an accent on the A. And Dada is significant because she was a sister of a warrior spirit named Shango, and so Plaza writes this sonnet the Spanish sonnet, which in so many ways would seem typical of the tradition. Uh, but then you look at the sonnet carefully and you realize who he's addressed it to. And he's addressed it to uh, a spirit 
that whose sister is a warrior. And he says in one verse, I'll quote quickly, you will contemplate the sun beneath her garments of the most vibrant pilgrim fire and the globe of divine virtue in each bead of her holy rosary. Her protection is a sign of jubilation. She assures you victory in life. And when the day of death arrives, as the king of kings reads your past by the imminent refuge of Mary, she will open the doors of glory to you, end quote. So what's significant about this poem is that it's written about an African religious confraternity or religious brotherhood. And these brotherhoods had chosen the Virgin of Rosary and transculturated her with an African spirit. On surface, the poem speaks to the Virgin Mary, but the subtext is a reference to the African spirit. We know that because of the name of the spirit. And we know that because she's granting victory to these black men. Mm. Wow, that, that, that's incredible. That, like, and, and and to be honest, like before reading um, uh, your text, right, Cuban literature in the age of black interaction, I was not aware, right? I, I knew about anti-slavery uh, uh, poetics and. And such in the in the um, U.S. context, but it, it, it's it's a pleasure to obviously expand my my knowledge base um, with, with your particular work, and I'm sure uh, I'm not the only one, right? I'm sure many of my listeners are probably shaking their heads, like you know, up and down, like, dang, that you we gonna have to buy this book, you know what I'm saying? We gonna have to buy this book, right? Um, and, and, and also in this particular moment. There's something so beautiful about, mm-hmm. about, about about poetics, about writing, about the experience on the page of, 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 of describing freedom that might not even be present yet. But because of your position and, and your opportunity, you can dream dreams that other people are dreaming and yet make them real in a particular form of way that allows your words to live on well past your time. Um, at least in, in the first iteration of your life here, and so um, as well with this with this moment as well. So, can you talk to us as we finish up? What does Cuban literature in the age of Black insurrection offer listeners and future readers in terms of world making, Black futures, and even freedom? And, and, and can you speak specific to the moment that we're that we're currently uh, discussing? Right, not only Juneteenth, but the murders of Breonna Taylor, right? She murder uh, her murderers are still still out there and, and 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 not locked up, right? And and you know George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and and the list unfortunately goes on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a great sense of vulnerability for all of yeah. us um, of African descent and uh, for Latinx people and Indigenous people and same gender loving people. Um, I um. I like to think of my work is in the realm of, of knowledge production and teaching. Um, and I have the, the honor right now of teaching uh, two courses, uh, actually on South America, but uh, Afro-Argentine poetry. And I'm focusing with my graduate students on anti-racist pedagogy. Um, but in order to teach that, 
when we start with the experience of people of African descent, we're not starting with the slave trade. We're starting with West Central Africa, uh, with an African queen known as Nzinga, Queen Nzinga of Ndongo. And, and there's the same region where the Bakongo were. Um, there's a different ethnic group called the Imbundu. And we started there because I wanted these students to, to provide young Blacks here and children, really, children and teenagers here in uh, Mobile County uh, with a different historical antecedent. I think that when I look at Manzano and Plasio, what I want readers to take away from Cuban literature and the age of Black insurrection is that Manzano and Plasio are not failed would-be revolutionaries, that they, are, they were intellectuals uh, that drew upon uh, African ideas of spirit and cosmos, particularly that concept that one should acquire the power necessary to liberate herself, that we should have a pluriversal vision of the world. Um, they provided a blueprint for Black struggle. They provided a blueprint for Black struggle. We are at a crossroads, um, and we know that we are at a crossroads. Um, and we have to figure out which, which direction we're going to go in. We could either turn to, it's either going to be anti-racist democracy or authoritarianism. That's it. And uh, I think that we, we have to look at the blueprint uh, and that we need solidarity, uh, not only among black groups, but among black groups and other groups, um, members of the global majority and, uh, and uh, radical white allies that are doing the work uh, in order to avert uh, authoritarianism. I think pedagogy plays a role. Mm. And also too, right, going to your particular expertise and, and, your, and, and your knowledge, or you're talking about knowledge production before, this is a question that, that I've been going back to a lot most recently, especially just thinking about my own positionality um, within the academy and what that actually means, do you feel called to the work that you are doing? Mm. Um, I feel like I'm supposed to be doing what I'm doing. Um, I know when I was still in graduate school and I was writing, working and writing the project, uh, I got a lot of skepticism. <laughs> mm. uh, the question was, are you sure you're seeing what you're seeing? <laughs> Those texts, you're not making that up or you're not you know, imposing yourself on the text. And uh, there was so much skepticism uh, from some of the professors that I was working with that I had to become uh, a better writer and a better researcher. Um, but at the time, it seemed like an intellectual exercise that was necessary in order to make a contribution to Black people globally and to graduate. And once I finished in 2010, um, it became clear as, as the population, as, as the way in which racism is expressed became more virulent and began to sound like the 1960s uh, to somebody who was born in the 1970s, myself. Um, I began to realize that it was much more than intellectual exercise. It was much more than a symbolic contribution to people of African descent, that it had immediate, uh, immediate uh, applications. So I like to think of a slave society as uh, an, uh, kind of an old uh, authoritarian regime you know, and that when we look at struggle against slavery and anti-slavery, you also then have a critique what of carceral landscapes or prisons. You have a critique of white supremacy there. 
You have a critique of a universal concept of knowledge. And so I think by looking at this, what I, what I try to bring to my students is we have an opportunity to be decolonial. We have opportunity to be decolonial. If we're going to be anti-racist, we also need to be decolonial. But we've got to look back. Part of my, I think one of the biggest parts of my contribution is to say, let's look back to the African continent, right? When we're looking for models of freedom, let's look back. Let's learn whether we're learning from West Africans that resisted slavery, right? In places like Futa Toro, uh, that Rudolf Ware writes about in the walking Quran, right? Or whether we're looking at rice cultivation. Let's look back, right? We can't return to a pre-slavery time, but we can draw from African knowledge systems in the process of building a new world. Mm. And two, right, can you speak to us about, you know, what what inspires you can, to continue to do the work that you're doing at the University of South Alabama? Oh, I don't know. Sometimes I don't know. <laughs> uh, I've enjoyed the university where I, where I teach right now. My dad was born in Mobile. Oh. And... Uh, uh, gosh, when was that? In the 1930s. And he moved to Detroit when he was five. So that gave Mobile a certain mystique to me. Uh, there's lots of petways here in Alabama. It's definitely very much a petway surname. Um, I feel like sometimes I feel like, I don't know how this will sound to people, but when I think about a last name like Petway, knowing that it was Mark Petway's um, name and that he was an enslaver uh, that brought people from North Carolina to Alabama against their will, our own trail of tears. Right. Um, I like to think of myself as bringing honor to an otherwise ignoble name. Um, and I like to think of myself as coming back to a place, to an ancestral home and, and doing work that would be pleasing to ancestors here, making some contribution so that when my time is up, you know, uh, I will have done my part. So Amen. 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 And, 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 I, and I feel that, right? Because at the end of the day, if you don't know um, where in Africa, and obviously, right, the, even the, just the question of, you know, where in Africa are my ancestors? And it's like, then you do the math. It's like, hold on, I got two parents. I got this. I got this. And it just breaks down so many different tentacles. That's like, you know, yeah, we, we obviously understand the, the, uh, the really the nature of Black genealogy in this particular way. So I, I definitely understand where you're coming from with uh, with what you're thinking about, um, especially in the uh, Mobile, Alabama area. Um, and, and I've been to Mobile a couple times. Um, okay. Yeah, in my life, because I played rugby at FAMU. I started the rugby club there, and we would come. Uh, we we uh, traveled with also the lo- the local uh, men's club as well to Mobile. Uh, because, you know, it's just straight down, you know, I-10 and you're right there. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm, the, the Gulf Coast is, uh, to me, one of the most magnificent places in all the world. And and there, there, there's so much love. There's so much terror. There's so much life. Yeah. And, the, and there's just so much humanity that's down there that, um, yeah. it, it, you know, being up here in Jersey, I miss it a lot. Um and so, and so, also, just like on as a as a parting uh, question to you, uh, what what do uh, Masano and Placido mean to you, right? As as the author of Cuban literature in the age of Black insurrection, 
what do the two central figures in this story mean to you as the author in your life and just looking forward? I think in some ways they represent different tendencies within Black thought. Um, I think Monsanto's, without explaining chapter six or the epilogue <laughs> to the readers, <laughs> to the hopefully potential readers, um, I think Monsanto represents a tendency towards reform, the notion that that certain things about the system have to be changed, but a reticence to say, we got to throw out the baby with the bathwater this time. Um, I see a reticence in his work regarding that notion, even though he definitely believed in Black freedom. He wanted to reconstitute his family after his parents passed away. You know, this is why he writes the poem, A Dream for My Second Brother, Un Sueño Mi Segundo Hermano. Um, so there's something very personal about it. There's a vulnerability in Monsanto that I identify with uh, and that I appreciate. There's a genius there, his ability to, to memorize those sermons and then to use that doctrine uh, when it was convenient for him. I also said something about his intellect, right? Um, so he, rep but he, but he does politically, I think, represent a tendency towards reform and a reticence for revolution. Whereas Flacio, who was born in different conditions, who I you know, like to think about as, as that Martin Delaney figure, uh, but a Cuban Martin Delaney figure. Interestingly enough, Martin Delaney wrote about him in the novel Blake, if anyone's interested in that. But, um, but Plasso, I think, re uh, represents um, the ability to have a public face and a private face. Uh, he was known as a, as a placid one, the calm one. Uh, he was at dinner parties improvising poetry for the wealthy because he had to make a living rather than have any money. But at the same time, you could find him a couple of neighborhoods down at a drumming party, you know, talking about revolution, improvising poems like The Oath, Swearing to Kill the Tyrant. And so I think Placido uh, represents uh, a full-throated argument for revolution, saying that the baby and the bathwater are contaminated and they've been contaminated from their very origin. We can do, we have to do away with both. And I think that idea, though so important and perhaps easy to write about, is more difficult to embrace. But this is the moment where we have to choose. Whew. Look, that's, that's a call right there, y'all. That is a call right there. And, and it's just been a pleasure to, to, to finally get this interview taken, you know, done, right? You know, we, we met uh, at the, what seems That's like right. the, what might be the last conference of 2020, <laughs> right? right? And that's the African-American Intellectual History Society's uh, annual conference uh, in, in University of Texas at Austin. And, and this that was, mind you, in mid-March. And now we are literally mid going into the end of June. And that's yet right. it feels like so much has happened literally since you passed me your the flyer for your book. Uh, uh, that the University Press of Mississippi, uh, I you know, I, I or and yourself uh, put together, and so it, it's it's an honor and a pleasure to to discuss you know such an amazing and also very prescient book, right? For 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 our, for our moment, um, and also you know that book is Cuban literature in the age of Black insurrection, Monsano Placido, and Afro Latino religion. And once again, folks, this book is published by our friends at the University Press of Mississippi. 
and its That's author right. is Dr. Matthew Petway, assistant professor of Spanish at the University of South Alabama in Mobile, Alabama, the That's real right. USA, right? The real <laughs> USA, as they say. I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, doggone it, I'm going to say it for you, my brother. I'm going to say it for you. And if y'all, if y'all have enjoyed this podcast episode like, like I have, please, please, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Google Play, Himalaya, wherever. Google, you know, saying, please, please, please rate us and review us because really we need to know how we are doing. Leave comments, leave reviews, do it all. Because ultimately, we want to know how we're doing because if we got to do something better, how are we going to know? Let's be real <laughs> about it, y'all. And so, Dr. Petway, before we get out of here, did you have any, you know, last parting words for, for the listeners here? I'm just I'm really grateful for the opportunity to speak about the book. I uh, hope that this was clear. Um, I just I'm um, really grateful for the opportunity. I think this is an, we, we, we can look at this crisis, these crises, right, in the plural, and we can find opportunity in them. So uh, this is one of those times where you call the person that you love that's really got on your nerves and you try to figure out if there's a way to to uh, to mend fences and collaborate. You really do, you know. Um, so, I hope that um, that the book is an inspiration to people, and that as we think about as African Americans like myself, as we think about models for freedom, that we're willing to look outside of the United States, and to know that folks who are at, as brilliant as as Martin Delaney and and Frederick Douglass and Anna Julia Cooper, that we have those models in Cuba and Argentina and Colombia. Um, the world is big, y'all, and blackness is everywhere. There we go, y'all. There we go. And once again, this is your host of New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Adam McNeil, over and out.